to the men and women who are part of Fusion, it's a personal delight to see your growth and uh, to see you here this Tuesday morning in chapel to get to send you forth. Did you want you in the room? We have some, a few parents and friends here, family members here. I want to say a word of greeting to you as well. And uh, we dare not take it for granted that here we are getting to send you out. Uh, we had planned to do that in a previous year, right? But COVID upended all these things. But here we are by God's grace and we're gathered uh, to get to go. This service, as has sort of been intimated already, really is, is, there's two components to it. One is a retrospective component, recognizing the training that you have undertaken, uh, the experiences that, that you have accomplished, the thresholds that you have crossed, and to celebrate that and say, that is no small thing. We live in an age where personal sacrifice, where personal commitment, where self-discipline, uh, those are in short demand. But you guys, you men and women, you have pursued, you have received the training, you have passed the test literally and figuratively along the way. And so we don't come in the room today kind of sort of hoping that you're prepared to go, but we gather today believing that you're prepared to go. And so we recognize that and we celebrate that. But it's not just to reflect on what you've accomplished. It is indeed to send you forth, to send you out, to undertake a great work, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to distant places. And so we do that today with a tremendous sense of expectancy as to what God will do through your service while you're away. And not only while you're away this summer, but what God will do ongoingly in your life as a part of the lessons you have learned and the disciplines you have forged and the convictions you have developed throughout the past year and as they will be sharpened this summer. So we gather today to say a word of congratulations, but also a word of expectation as you go forward. Now, for the few minutes I have to you, I want to speak to you briefly from first, uh, excuse me, from Romans chapter one, and just a few words of encouragement that, that I want to speak to you from these verses, and, and basically just thinking with you about four essentials for missionary service. Four essentials for missionary service. Now, Romans, we know this great letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome and to all of us where he unpacks the gospel in all of its splendor. But it begins not just with this great declaration in verses 16 and 17 about Paul's uh, confidence in the gospel, his, his, his belief in the gospel, and it being the power of God unto salvation. But even before that, we get some personal reflections about what the gospel meant to him and his ambitions to preach the gospel. And so I want to, to learn for a few minutes from the apostle and bring this to bear into your lives as we, as we really set the table for expectations. As we think about what it looks like, what are these essential disciplines, these essential components of missionary service? The first thing I see, the first truth I see is, is the necessity of you having a sure calling. Paul begins this letter, he reflects on his apostleship, right? But he also reflects on the gospel and how it showed up in his life. And, and you know the story of Paul, so we won't rehearse it at length here. But this man was a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ, even through the church. He, he encounters Christ, Christ encounters him. On the Damascus Road, we see expa, uh, explained in Acts chapter 9, and then subsequently two more times in the book of Acts, and then referenced in multiple other New Testament places where Paul speaks autobiographically of his conversion. But, but he, he encounters Christ. And everything that he was doing by way of persecuting the church, everything he was doing as one who was accomplished in Judaism, and a Pharisee, and everything he was doing becomes upended radically, dramatically. And it was so clear, so stark, 
not only his conversion, but his subsequent call as an apostle and his subsequent missionary work as he goes about on these missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean region, taking the gospel. All of it is built upon this tremendous personal hinge that took place in Acts chapter 9. And you get the feeling from Paul that regardless of where he was, what foe he confronted, what adversary was tracking him, what court he was standing before, what stone he was receiving, his confidence, his assuredness in his position in Christ was never in doubt. I've observed in ministry over the years that those who seem to be most effective over the long term in ministries are those who maintain a clear sense of their personal conversion. For some, it is radical, typically not as radical as the Apostle Paul's, of course, but it is radical. There was a clear trajectory you were going on, a clear way of life you were pursuing. But God intervened as, as a teenager, as a young adult, and God redirected your life. And, and that is clear and settled, and you're confident in your innermost being that if you die this moment, that you would be with Christ forever. The man and woman who has a lack of clarity, a lack of certainty about their conversion, about the assurance of their salvation, is the person who is not really prepared for maximum fruitfulness in ministerial missionary service. Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. I've been called as an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel of God. And then he digresses into this gospel and how it's packaged in the scriptures and how it came to him. And he speaks to his, his desire to preach the gospel in Rome and to get to Rome. And, and, and then in, in verse 8, or beginning in verse 9, really, we see the second essential, and that is a, a burdened heart. He says, for God, in verse 9, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, make a request, if perhaps now at, by, at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while amongst you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. There is a burden in this man's heart for gospel ministry in Rome. My prayer for you is, as the days are drawing to a close before you head out overseas, is that the place you are going to serve, your burden for the people in that place, at that place, will far surpass your sense of curiosity about that place. And look, we know the fusion DNA, and we know the fusion ministry, and you guys are not going on the, you know, the proverbial youth group mission trip to Cancun for a week. Uh, you are not doing that. You're going to distant places to do hard work. And some of those are way, way, way off the beaten path. Other, those, other places will be in or in proximity to major metropolitan areas that have a particularly high degree of lostness. But wherever you are going, you are going to do an eternal work. And I have found in ministry over the years that, that a part of, of seeing God's call in a person's life to perhaps a new place to minister, a new congregation to serve, 
or overseas is a part of that process is God deepening a burden, not just for a place uh, or not just an intrigue for a place, but a deepening burden for the people to whom you are going to minister. And I know where you're going. I'm, I'm very well of the itinerary. And I know the high concentration of lostness you will experience, you will encounter. And I pray that as you're there, and even now as you're going, there's a deepening burden within you, a deepening sense of, of sadness within you over that lostness, and a deepening sense of urgency that God has you there for that season to impact that lostness. I pray you have a sense of burden like Paul has here. I was uh, a couple weeks ago when, when spring was here, back before spring left, uh, I was out uh, in the yard with our, our, some of our younger kids and uh, my, my youngest daughter, Elizabeth, and I, we got into a good old-fashioned game of hide-and-seek with her two brothers. And uh, so it was me and Elizabeth, uh, my daughter, and we were going to go hide, and the, her two brothers were going to go find us. And we're kind of playing back and forth, and we'd found them a time or two. They had found us a time or two. Well, then Elizabeth and I found, like, the perfect hiding place. And I was so proud of myself, and, and we were so excited, and we're like, they, they are never going to find us. And so we got sequestered away in our hiding place, and we can kind of see from a distance where they're looking, and they're so cold, they're nowhere near warm. And, you know, five minutes goes by, and we are so excited. They're never going to find us. They're never going to find us. And then 10 minutes go by, and they're never going to find us. They're never going to find us. And then 15 minutes goes by, and I say, they're, actually, they're never going to find us. And there's something about that where you actually need to be found, right? It gets old to hide indefinitely forever. Where you are going there are people by the millions who are lost. And humanly speaking, humanly speaking, they are a long way from being found. There's very little, if any, gospel ministry taking place where you're going. Very little, if any, gospel resources where you're going. Very little, if any, gospel preaching churches where you're going. And imagine in an eternal game of hide-and-seek, not to torque the metaphor too far, but people that are there, humanly speaking, that unless you find them throughout their life, they may never be found. Now, I say that to heighten the sense of stewardship you have. Um, ultimately, we trust in the Lord and God's perfect plan and God's sovereign work and God sending you there is central to that work. But there are people there for you to reach. Be burdened in that work. Thirdly, the third essential is, uh, and this really builds upon the second, but that is not only a sure calling and a burdened heart, but also in an indebted mentality. Paul says in verse 14 and 15, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, wait a minute. Why is Paul indebted? to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. This is a way of, of, of him speaking expansively of all peoples, regardless of their background or their, or their tribe or their type. What have the Greeks or the barbarians or the wise and the foolish done for Paul that leaves him indebted? The answer, of course, is nothing. The indebtedness he feels is not derived from something he has received from these, 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 these lost constituencies. No. The indebtedness he feels is from gratitude over what God has given him through Christ Jesus. And that, that, that motivates him. It, it emboldens him to go and preach because he is a recipient of the grace of God. 
And we should stir, we should kindle within us that sense of indebtedness. And one good barometer for our hearts, for all of us in the room, not just the mission, uh, the fusion candidates before me, but for all of us in the room is like, what is our indebtedness quotient? What is our sense of burden for the lost? And I found in my own Christian life that if that indebtedness quotient is low and that sense of burden is low, that usually means something else is adrift in my heart. So I I want to challenge you this morning, especially fusion men and women, to as you're overseas and as you're preparing to go overseas, stir that sense of indebtedness. Cultivate that sense of indebtedness by, by reflecting on and delighting in Christ and all that you've gained through him. Well, notice fourthly and briefly, the fourth essential we see is a, a confident message. I love this. And again, we're familiar with these two verses. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel from the power of God for salvation For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, notice verse 16 and 17, when Paul goes from that to launching off into this great expounding on the gospel, he gets straight to the wrath of God, which is where the gospel begins. All men and women apart from Christ are destined for the wrath of God. But Paul, before he even gets into that, and, and it kind of is a, is a, in that verse 18 and following, the wrath of God, the consequences of unbelief serve as this, to, to put the gospel out in relief from it. And with the sense of deadness behind verses 16 and 17, and with the wrath of God as the first great truth about the gospel, the need for the gospel to come. He stands strong and confident and declares, I am not ashamed. Some of you in fusion have already had to cross that threshold. You came to study at this institution, be a part of fusion. You had to declare to a mom or dad that was skeptical, no, I'm going because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You had to declare in your own way to uh, graduating high school friends that you're going to do this mission program known as Fusion, and in declaring that, you were saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Friends and perhaps family members, perhaps close family members, perhaps for some of you, you're taking the step was a watershed moment defining for you the seriousness of Christian ministry and missionary service within your own life, and that is a good thing. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. And look, we are, you know, demographic studies come at us with great frequency these days, and people are chopped up into different groups and different identities and by race or age or wealth or, or, or national background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, there are only two categories that matter. Those who are saved and those who are not. And Paul is saying, that's why I am not ashamed of the gospel because I'm aware of those categories. And I'm taking the gospel message to impact 
that category of lostness, to reach those people who are lost. I'm going not kind of sort of thinking this gospel message may be helpful. No, I'm going believing it is not only the message, it is the only message that saves. And in so doing, in so doing, he's giving us a tremendous reminder about the urgency of the gospel work. I'm in my ninth year here at Midwestern Seminary, and uh, when we moved into uh, to Kansas City, they used to have, and perhaps they still have, I don't think so though, at least not with the same level of um, pervasiveness, they used to have these cameras on the traffic lights. And that was a new thing for me. I, Louisville, where we moving from, we didn't have those, and I didn't know we had those here, but traffic lights had these cameras. And look, you know, and so if you had any like traffic... Um, infringement of, 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 of rules, they would let you know and not in a polite way. And so outside the, uh, the driveway there at the Vivian house, there's a red light and, and we're here getting moved in. And I didn't realize, but evidently I was like kind of cruising through the yellow when I was supposed to be stopping at the yellow. And uh, we get in the mail one day, my wife gets in the mail, like this ticket for however many dollars and that I had went through the light as it was yellow and I guess perhaps turning red. And, uh, <laughs> And, that's just, and, and for my wife, and my wife is like, had never had a traffic citation in her life until a couple of years ago. And so this was always like, you know, this was just under like capital punishment, getting a traffic citation. And, uh, and, and, and she was like, you got, you went, you know, you got this traffic, you went, you went through the light and it was turning around. I, I just, I said, no, I did not. This, I, I never do that. She said, well, you did. And got this ticket in the mail. And I said, no way. And she pulls out and there's a ticket in the mail for like 90 bucks. And, and there's a picture of me, me going through the light and like it's red. And my wife was like so frustrated with me. Well, like four or five days later, my wife calls me at work and says, you have got another ticket in the mail for going. I said, that's not possible. I didn't do that. There's, there's, that's not me. That's not me. And, 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 and she's like, it's you. And so I go home that night for dinner. And sure enough, there is a second citation, the same red light leaving my driveway. Well, like four days later, I get this phone call. My wife is like, Jason, you have gotten another citation leaving our driveway. And I'm like, there's no way that's not me. Well, come to find out there's like a 30 day delay on these things. So I was, you know, I, I had corrected my, my behavior, but I did not correct it in time because that, well, anyway, like four days later, I got another phone call from my wife that I had gotten another traffic ticket. Well, like four days later, my wife called me and tells me she's leaving me because of, no, I'm joking. <laughs> But four days, every four, three or four days for about two weeks, a total of four times, and this is confession here, I had gotten these traffic citations. And every time my first impulse was, I didn't do it. Like, I, I know I don't do that, but, but there's a picture and it's you and there's a red light and it's your car going through it and there's a fine with it. And no matter how innocent you feel, no matter how much you think you can kind of you know, squeeze the facts to get a narrative that supports your your innocence, no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter, you're guilty. And we live in a world where humanity is really good at squeezing the facts. Everyone can protest their innocence. Everyone thinks they're going to be able to engage in a private dialogue with God and kind of talk him into seeing it their way. But we know the scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture gives us very black and white scenarios that only those who die with the righteousness of Christ applied to their account have the hope of spending eternity with God in heaven. And those who die 
without Christ. Every errant word, every errant deed, every errant thought has been perfectly cataloged and is ready to be presented in the courts of justice on the last day. And we all are doomed by that criteria, save Christ Jesus. So fusion men, fusion women, you go with that sense of burden, that sense of indebtedness, that sense of confidence that the gospel saves men and women and redeems them out of that lostness and the impending judgment they will face. I'm going to pray for us and then invite Eric back up. Father, thank you for this, these moments together here to reflect on the gospel and to encourage the men and women before me. And Father, I, I pray that indeed, as these men and women head out in the days to come, would you do a tremendous work through them as they're away and even in them as they're away. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.